thank you for the Bible. God, I thank you that you have chosen to speak to us, past tense, and you continue to speak to us, present tense, through your word. It's not a dead word. It's living and active. And so, God, I know that um, you desire, because you've told us this, uh, you desire to, to pierce our hearts this morning and to meet us here in this place. Father God, I pray that you might give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you'd want us to hear and see from your word. And God, give me the wisdom to know how to preach this passage with clarity and with boldness and with courage in a way, God, that would transform my heart and our hearts collectively, God. For those who are far from you, God, draw them near. For those who have been pushing you away, God, humble them. And for those, Lord, who love you zealously, keep us, God, on that pace and on that track. Glorify your name among us, we pray. God, we also pray um, for our nation. God, uh, there's, a, there's a, a lot taking place on the political scene, all of which I believe us in the church should be bothered by. Um, Father, th- there, there are many things that have been taking place here that should grieve us. So, Lord, we just pray for wisdom, God. We live in a free country, and we have benefited much from these freedoms. Um, and so we, we want to be thankful. We do have grateful hearts. But, Lord, there are a lot of things that are not right. And you told us not to have hope in this world. <laughs> You've you told us to, to not bank on the capital cities and Washington, D.C., or anywhere else. And God, our hope here in the United States is the same as the hope that our brothers in China have and our sisters in South America and our families across the world. Our hope is in you. And so, Lord, we want to be responsible. We want to be vocal in a way that honors you. But we don't want to hope in this life. There's too much work to be done that's of eternal worth. So help us stay grounded on your truth and not to think the sky is falling, but help us also be proactive, speaking the truth of your word in a way that's loving and honoring to you. And so God, may that be our burden as we move forward, even to the voting booths on Tuesday and across the nation in the months to come. We give you glory, God. And thank you, Jesus. You're coming back one day. And so we bank on that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned a few times already, we were gone last weekend in Lincoln, Nebraska. Man, they love college football in that city, man. Everyone wearing red for the Nebraska Cornhuskers. We had the privilege of talking to uh, hundreds of couples, married couples, um, and some engaged couples about God's design for marriage. And Erica and I want to tell you guys thank you, seriously. Thank you for allowing us to go on and be a part of what God's doing across this country in a way that uh, that really just, I think, honors him. And what I love in particular is never have I heard from the church family just this pressure like, oh, you got to be here. We need you here. And I think the reason for that is we have phenomenal leaders here at this church. And uh, I'm thankful for our brothers and sisters who serve in a variety of capacities. Um, Thank you, Tony, for bringing the word last week and Jeremy for leading us in communion. Um, thank you for our worship team, for everyone. I'm just so grateful for that. Um, what we did as part of our time last weekend was on Saturday night, we, uh, 
told all the couples to go on date night. A lot of these couples hadn't gone on a date in a long time. In fact, they hadn't been away from the kids for a long time or just haven't had their schedules to meet up. And it's a strategic thing because we know the power of having a meal with somebody, beginning with our spouse, but also with our friends. My question for you today is you have dinner plans. Not tonight necessarily. I know you have lunch plans, the welcome luncheon. But you have dinner plans. Have you thought about how to use the dinner table to do great things for God? We can think about some great memories around the dinner table. Some of them you want to forget. I, I know that Eric and I have had some great moments on dates around a dinner table. We've had some great conversations with our kids around a dinner table. I've had some great time with brothers of mine going out to eat and just talking life and talking family and talking work, talking faith while eating chicken wings or a steak. Because there's something sweet that takes place when we gather around a dinner table or lunch, or a cup of coffee, and say, what's going on in your life? It kind of puts down the guards somewhat. It allows us to enjoy something here, the food, and then be able to enjoy a conversation together. I remember this time as a kid, I have this face I make. It's called the bird beak. You've seen it. I know you love it. Um, and, I, and I would do this thing where we would pray at the dinner table, and my sister's friend would come over. Her name was Ashley, poor Ashley. Um, she could not help but laugh whenever I did the bird beak. So we'd be at the dinner table. My parents said, all right, let's pray. We'd all close our eyes, and I knew she was going to look at me. And so I just had my eyes closed and just be like this. And she would just start laughing, and my mom would be like, Ashley, stop laughing. We're praying. And she's like, okay. Close her eyes, and I'd do it over and over again. And she'd start cracking up and get in big trouble, and I just kind of found some joy in doing that. I mean, we have different memories around the the meal table. You see, Jesus, Jesus invested much in meals as part of this, his mission. And I want us to be thinking as we go through this text how we can use the times that we eat throughout the day, three meals a day, 21 meals a week, how can we take one or two of those and invest it into the life of somebody who's far from Jesus? Just think about that. 21 meals, take one and use it for God's glory. We find ourselves in the book of Mark, chapter 2 today, verses 13 through 17. And we've been going through a series called Follow Me from the book of Mark. And it's Jesus who speaks those words, follow me, numerous times in this book. And we come to one of those times here in our chapter today. What Jesus does in the book of Mark is he calls us to follow him and be his disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who is increasingly putting all of life under his authority. And he teaches us in a variety of ways, sometimes from his taught word, sometimes from his, his example, on what it means to follow him and how to be engaged in Jesus' mission. And so we're going to find ourselves in chapter 2, verse 13. And before we get to talk about Jesus' dinner table times, we've got to work there first and see how Jesus got to a meal with somebody. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. Those are our gifts to you if you don't own a Bible. And in that pew Bible, we're on page what? 837. Mark writes this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, 
sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, say it with me, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has a way with words. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The chapter or the section begins with Jesus walking along the sea. He liked to be by the Sea of Galilee. People gathered by the sea to eat, to have their fishing industry. But it wasn't only people who worked in the fishing industry, but it was also tax collectors who gathered there. And Jesus went out by the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. It was a host of people from varying backgrounds. A crowd of people came to follow him. You know, what we see in our our political time right now is that crowds of people are flocking to candidates. And I think a lot of it is they're searching for answers. They're, They're looking for hope. And I think it's ingrained in our human nature to look for hope that's beyond what we're seeing right now. And what was true... It's true in our politics. It's also true in the faith. There are people who are searching. And, but what people come to know is that our society and government can't offer the hope that we truly need. It, it can't offer solutions for life that are sustainable beyond the here and now. And the crowds flock to Jesus with that same kind of anticipation, looking for answers, not even sure what they're looking for. And we've seen Jesus wasn't impressed with crowds. He knew that crowds did not necessarily mean acceptance. Celebrity wasn't necessarily sincerity. They wanted to be there, but they weren't sure what they were looking for. And they came to Jesus, and he took advantage of this time to teach them. Now we see that Jesus, throughout his ministry, put a premium on teaching. This is why we preach the Bible every single Sunday. We don't have a drama, although those are good. We don't sing songs for an hour and a half, although we love singing. We don't just have a time of sharing, we preach. We preach the word of God because his word is living and active. And Jesus put a premium on teaching in his ministry. Because what God teaches through his word, it transforms our minds and helps us see that our hearts need him. Jesus, yes, he healed people. He did many great miracles, but it was his teaching that made a difference. And so Jesus teaches the crowd. And as he passed by in verse 14, he saw a man named Levi. He was the son of Alphaeus, and he was sitting at a tax booth. And Jesus said to Levi, follow me. You know, in our context, we don't really necessarily understand the significance of what just happens right there. Levi had a problem. He was a tax collector. And if we're all honest, we don't want the IRS showing up at our doorsteps either. You know, it's like, I've got a friend who's a tax collector. He's my friend, but I don't want him coming over my house for wrong reasons. Come for dinner. Don't, don't come with like a pen and pad, you know. And and so Levi had an issue. He was a tax collector. And the problem wasn't just that he collected taxes, but the problem was he was a sellout. He was a traitor. Because his name Levi tells us he was Jewish. 
In fact, in the book of Matthew, we find that another name that he has is Matthew. He's Matthew Levi. And he was a Jewish man, and tax collectors worked for Rome, the oppressors. Levi was a sellout. He worked for the oppressors, being a tax collector, taking taxes that the Jewish people felt were levied against them unjustly. So not only did he work for the enemy, but he also pulled money from his own brothers. A lot of tax collectors were drawn to the living, even though they were outcasts among their brothers, because it was lucrative. See, the people didn't know exactly what the tax was due to them, and so these tax collectors would add a, a few extra bucks to that. And they'd make a profit off of others who came with their, tax, with their taxes. So Levi was a, a traitor, a sellout, and Jesus sees this man, and he looks at Levi, and he says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. You, you see, when we read through narratives, the stories in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, every one of them has a moment of crisis in them. And as we interpret the Bible, it's important to know where that crisis is. And right here in our passage, this is the crisis. Jesus, the great teacher, with the crowds following him, comes by this outcast traitor sellout and says, hey, want to be one of my disciples? There's a crisis moment there. I'm sure the crowds wonder what's going on, and undoubtedly the religious leaders did too. And in these stories in the Bible, when there's this crisis moment, there then begins to be some, some tension that begins to thicken as the story unfolds before there's a resolution at the end of the story. I want us to take a look at the tension as it unfolds here. You see, Jesus is there. He calls him to follow him. And it says that he arose and followed him. See, there's an irony that's taking place here. This man that others probably written off is the one who immediately responds to Jesus. See, what Jesus is teaching us here is that even somebody as despised as Levi is not too far from God's hand of forgiveness. And we say this week in and week out at the brook, but we will never grow tired of saying it because we won't grow tired of hearing it. If we know our hearts, we know how corrupt that they are. And from week to week, there are ways that we fail and fall on our faces, and we need to come back and come to the cross and remember that Jesus calls Levi's tax collectors. He says, follow me to them. He calls them to himself. We're never beyond God's love and forgiveness, and we need to hear that. Last weekend, when Erica and I were in Nebraska, we had the privilege of giving a talk to about 18 or 19 engaged couples, so almost 40 people. And these couples are engaged at a marriage conference because they're trying to figure out a number of different things. How to have a marriage that works, to discern whether or not the person they're with really is the one they should marry, and just figure out what, what this whole relationship thing is all about. And so we had the opportunity to talk with them about marriage, and it was a great time. They're very receptive. They, they invested in the weekend to be there, and it was a privilege. And then after that talk with these couples, we break them up, men and women, and I had the opportunity to talk to the men in particular. And we had a Q&A time. And as part of that Q&A time, the, one of the guys said, you know, Eric, I hear what you're saying about God's design for marriage and his design for sex and for intimacy in marriage and how God designed that to be for marriage. He said, but what about 
if in my past I've failed there. He said, you mentioned a verse in the Bible from Joel. Can you tell me that verse again? And I reiterated to this man. I said, you know, in Joel 2.25, God says that I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And there are choices that we make in life that make us feel like an outcast, like a Levi. And we, we, it hangs over our head. And I told these, these, these men and these women in our large group, I said, God will restore the years that locusts have eaten. And he's calling you to turn from that and embrace him and follow him obediently because you want to invite his blessing on your marriage. See, intimacy outside of marriage invites a lot of heartache and pain. And I could see it on many of their faces. I said, but when you choose God's plan and you turn from where you've been and go to where God wants you to be, you're inviting his blessing on your future marriage. And who doesn't want that? And so this guy's like, tell me that verse. And I told him the verse, and I told him, I said, you know what? This is not just one verse in the Bible. This is arguably one of the greatest themes of the Bible. <laughs> that God takes people with pasts and failures and makes something new. In our real communities, we've been going through the book of Joshua. And, uh, and so this was fresh on my mind. And I told this man, I said, take the story of a woman named Rahab in the Bible. Rahab, it says, was a prostitute. This was her identity. We don't know what drove her to be a prostitute. We don't know what kind of ways she might have been abused or forced into prostitution. But we know this was a stigma surrounding her. And I told a man, I said, but you know what we know about Rahab? She was one who heard that the God of Israel was powerful enough to part the Red Sea and redeem his people out of Egypt. And Rahab heard that, and she was the only person in the city of Jericho who was willing to do something about it. And the spies came in. She hid these spies from God's people, gave them safety, and sent them out because she believed in their God because of what she had heard. And I told this man, I said, you know, this woman had a past, but when she came in contact with the true God, he changed her life. I said, fast forward a few hundred years into the book of Matthew. And there we have this genealogy, this, this background, this family tree. And there's a name there which says Rahab, who begat Obed, who begat Jesse, who begat David, king of Israel. David being the great-grandfather of Jesus, the Messiah. And I told this man, I said, you know what? This, the theme of the Bible is that God is about his own glory. And he glorifies himself in taking our sin. And through faith and repentance gives us a new life. And I could tell these guys were like, man, I need to hear this. Because we all have those Levi parts of our our lives, our stories. Another guy came up to me. He says, you know, me and my girlfriend, we've been trying to, um, you know, we wanted to be pure. And then last year we both mutually agreed to, to be intimate together before marriage. We felt like, you know, we want to get married one day. This is, a, this is something we're going to move towards, so let's do that. He said, but now after, since we did that, we're having a lot of struggle in our relationship. And he says, you know, and I keep confessing things even to her, and I feel like I'm just, I'm so, such a bad off kind of guy. What do I do? And I told him, you got to put your foot down here. Put that line in the sand and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow Jesus at all costs. And I told him, remember, your story is your story. 
It's not someone else's. God is cultivating something in your life. And so we can look around and say, man, I wish my story was that story or that story, but it's your story, and this is our God who knows you personally. Jesus came along to see, and he saw Levi. He didn't see some guy. He didn't see this person. He saw Levi, a man with a name. And he knows you, a man and a woman with a name. And God is calling Levi's to come to him. And so Jesus here calls this man a sellout traitor, and the plot begins to thicken because Levi actually follows Jesus immediately. Not only did this guy follow Jesus, but Jesus makes things even harder for those who were bothered by this. Verse 15, and Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house. Not only did Jesus call this man to follow him, but Jesus like, I'm going to go to your house, Levi. Not only did Jesus go to Levi's house, he didn't just stay at the door front, just say, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait here at the entryway. But it said Jesus reclined at the table with him. Now you're like, why would you recline at a table? When you recline on a sofa? Well, culturally speaking, their tables were a lot lower, and they had these couches on the ground. They would recline and eat together. And that was kind of the position of a banquet kind of feast. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to park at this man's house and have a meal with this guy. And, of course, the religious leaders are like, Jesus, this guy is out of where we should be. You shouldn't be with him, let alone in this house, let alone having a meal with him. But not only was that crazy, but go on here. Not only was it Levi, but it says many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. So not only was Jesus there with this man, but he drew a crowd of people who were not so culturally accepted. There were many tax collectors. I mean, imagine the, the real strict religious leaders there like, what is going on? Jesus lost his mind. Last, you know, last week we saw, you know, he just told a guy you're forgiven. And now he's having a meal with these traitors, sellouts, and sinners. What is Jesus thinking? What I love about our Lord is that there's only a few times in the Bible that says that Jesus is something. Jesus was. And one of those statements is Jesus was a friend of sinners. He came eating and drinking, it says, and he was a friend of sinners. This is our story, family. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And he came down onto this earth to have meals with people that were ostracized culturally. And if we are all honest with ourselves, we are sinners in our hearts. We know this. We're born with this way. There are thoughts that enter your mind that you want no one else to know about. There are thoughts in your heart that you knew, like, if, if people knew what I was thinking right now, we, we know that's there. We can cover it up on the outside, but we know our hearts. We are sinful to the core of our being. Not that we're as bad as we can be, but we're bad fully. It's in our core. And Jesus says, I want dinner with you. And he has dinner with Matthew, with Levi, and all these tax collectors and other sinners. The religious leaders were a mess about this. It says in verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Isn't it interesting how they come to his disciples and not to him? There's that, that triangulation. You got an issue with someone, you go to someone else rather than to the person. 
is gossip. And so these men had a problem with Jesus, but they didn't go to Jesus about it. They go to someone else. And the plot thickens. When in reality, they have a problem with Jesus doing when they're the ones who are at fault here. They're the ones looking at these people thinking, I'm better than them. I'm mad at Jesus. I'm going to tell his disciples. I'm going to spread division. And And here Jesus is there. And he hears them. We saw last week that when, the, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, that this paralytic, to this, to this guy who was paralyzed, they began to think among themselves, who does this guy think he is that he would forgive sins? And it says Jesus knowing their thoughts. He's God. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. That's what that word means, all-knowing. And here he knows that they got a problem. They got a problem with him. But Jesus wasn't about people pleasing. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so Jesus isn't worried about pleasing the religious leaders. He's about pleasing his heavenly father. And he looks at them and he gives this statement. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We go to the doctor because we're sick. Or we go for a checkup. But if you got symptoms, you don't want to go to the doctor and the doctor says, yeah, you're sick. And like, I know I'm sick. That's why I'm here. I, I don't want, you know, you come in there because you, you, want, you want a prognosis, first of all. Then you want a, a prescription. You want to be treated. You want to be taken care of here. Healthy people don't go to the doctor in a hurry. We go because there's a concern. And Jesus said, I came to this earth because there are people who are sick. I haven't come for the righteous, but for sinners. And as I was reading this, I started thinking to myself, who are the righteous? If Jesus came for the sinners, who are the righteous? And I think Jesus is employing a bit of irony here. Because in this story, clearly the righteous are the religious leaders. They're the ones who are thinking they're better than everyone else. And like Jesus is like, yeah, I came, but you know what? You guys don't need me. I come for the people who need me. It's like an underhanded jab almost at them. Jesus is a a master teacher. And really what he's doing by stating that, he's exposing the fact that they're not righteous. They can't even see the plight of this man and have compassion on him. This room filled with sinners and tax collectors, people who are broken at the feet of Jesus, they find no value in that. So those who thought they were so righteous actually were not whatsoever. And Jesus said, I came with a purpose. See, our diagnosis, family, is that we are sinners enslaved to sin to our core. That's your diagnosis. And the prognosis, the, the, the future cast of your symptoms will lead you to death. It will lead to eternal separation from God. And Jesus said, I know that this is the diagnosis. I know the prognosis. And I've come to provide a prescription. I am the prescription. It is my blood that will be spilled to redeem them. And those who are sinners will become righteous before my father because he will see them through my perfection. This is the good news we have. And so Jesus points out that he's here to save people who understand that they need him. Bet you didn't know Dr. Pepper was invented in 1880 and began to be sold in 1885. And you know about Dr. Pepper, they pride themselves in this one thing. 
you can't describe what it tastes like. This, this is what they say. In fact, the former CEO, he writes this. He says, uh, I've always maintained you cannot tell anyone what Dr. Pepper tastes like because it's so different. It's not an apple. It's not an orange. It's not a strawberry. It's not root beer. It's not even a cola. He says, it's a different kind of drink with a unique taste all its own. Dr. Pepper and Dr. Jesus have something in common. There's no one like our great physician. He, He stands head and shoulders above all. Because Though we might perceive that our needs are external, we learned last week and we learned throughout Mark, our needs is our heart. We are sinners to the core, and Jesus has come, one of a kind, to bring forgiveness. He is unique, and he stands above all. He is our God, and he has come to save us. I believe Jesus wants us to respond a few ways as we, as we see this text here. He wants us to respond by embracing the call to follow him, okay? To follow him. You see, he tells Levi, follow me. And I love that phrase. Those two words are packed, aren't they? Because follow me requires a bit of surrender, doesn't it? It it requires laying things aside. You can't follow me with your feet up. You can't follow him with your eyes closed, And you can't follow him holding on to your agenda. Follow me requires a white flag. It requires surrender. Jesus calls Levi to follow him, to not look back. We know that Levi followed him because it says he got up and followed him. But what's so amazing is this. In the book of Matthew, we have the same exact story. And he tells this story there in Matthew 9. And he doesn't use his name Levi, he uses the name Matthew, because he wants us to make a connection here. See, this Levi, this Matthew, became one of Jesus' 12 apostles. This Levi, tax collector, sellout trader, wrote the first book of our New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. He's the one whose life Jesus changed. And you, God is calling to follow him. God is calling you to follow him. And maybe you have a story like Levi's, and you feel like you've been cast out from God and from other people. You've been ruled out. And you need to know God restores the years locusts have eaten. God raises up Rahab's. God raises up Levi's. What he calls us to do, though, is not simply just in a stagnant way believe, okay, just acknowledge that Jesus is real. But it's to follow him. It's to stand up and right over left, walk and follow Jesus. Jesus wants to respond by following him. One side note, man, it's so crazy. In the book of Matthew, we find the most extensive teachings of Jesus about money. Isn't that ironic? That a former tax collector provides for us some of the greatest teachings about money in the New Testament. His past sin became a, God redeemed it and instructed his church about the value of money in light of God's kingdom. It's beautiful. Not only do we follow Jesus, but here I want to park for the remainder of our time is God's calling us to eat with sick people. Share a meal. Which brings me to our question. Do you have dinner plans? Jesus is at the living room table 
with people that others had given up on. He exemplifies for us, first of all, a willingness to be with people that others cut out. And second of all, Jesus foreshadows something far more greater than this. We read when we opened up our service today from Revelation 19. Jesus has meals in this life pointing to a meal he's going to have one day with his church. And there's going to be this great marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus, the groom, will invite his bride to feast at his wedding reception. And the people at that table will be tax collectors and sinners like me and you, redeemed by the grace of God. And so what Jesus has done, he's given us a picture of what he will do one day. And as we invite people into our homes and at the dinner table, we're foreshadowing a greater meal to come. So do you have dinner plans? See, our potlucks are not just about Christian fellowship, but they're also about Christian mission. In our real communities, we potluck, we have meals once a month together, big meals If you are in a real community family, you must understand this. If we think our meals is strictly about us having this holy huddle together, we've missed the mission. Our meals must be about the mission and bringing people who are otherwise outcasts and say, hey, come to my family's home with my church family and let's share a meal together. And our meals must be intentional. That's the key word I want you to hear here. Intentional. Because there are a lot of people I've seen in the past who really want to engage their friends who are far from Jesus and they end up falling into the very same traps that they once were in in the past. And we need to proceed with wisdom. And I think this is how we do it. We start with being intentional. See, I know a lot of you have been, God has redeemed you out of some some bad stuff. You've got some difficult backgrounds and people that you used to run with. And you know if you hang with them again, that's going to provide some crazy temptation for you to fall again. And we urge people who are new in the faith or in that circumstance, say, you know what, you need to create some separation here. Not because you don't love them, and they might perceive you as, as you know, some person who thinks you're better than them. But for the sake of your own life, there's wisdom in creating some space there. I've seen people who say for the sake of mission, they go on and all these things, And they're falling into the traps on their faces because they weren't intentional and wise. So let's be wise. Let's wise up. And maybe wisdom says, no, you've got to keep your space. But I believe there's times where wisdom says, all right, begin to proceed with caution and with wisdom. And you do so by being prayed up. You prayerfully move forward. You get brothers and sisters around. You say, man, there's this friend of mine who I love. I would gladly die for this person. And they hate Jesus. I need to get back into their life. I'm going to go out for coffee with this brother. Would you guys pray for me? That's how we proceed. You seek counsel and wisdom of others. I always stress this, but men, don't go out to dinner with a woman who's not your wife. It just isn't safe. Ladies, wives, do not go out to dinner with a man who's not your husband. It's playing with fire. Now, if there's someone in your life who you want to reach with you and your husband or you and your wife, have them over for dinner in the security of your home. We, we, we got to wise up here, but we can't let the fear prevent us from being on mission, nor should we proceed foolishly. See, God has given us his Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian today, 
God has given you his Holy Spirit to give you wisdom to walk by the power of the Spirit. And here Jesus exemplifies that for us. See, Jude 20 and 23 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He's saying here, live this life awaiting Jesus' return, but don't become stagnant. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. There are people in our lives who are doubting, and we need to reach out to them, and the dinner table might be the place for your mission to take place. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. And you might need to do that with a friend. Say, hey, man, I'm pulling you out of this thing. And he goes on to say, and to others, show mercy, but with fear. Having, uh, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. It, it's a call to wisdom, but it's a call to intentionality as well. So do you have dinner plans? Will you create them? Maybe it's a cup of coffee, maybe it's lunch, maybe it's breakfast. But how will you invest one of your 21 meals a week and do what Jesus himself shows us? Have a meal with a tax collector or a sinner. See, the truth of the matter is when we stare across the table of somebody, we know we are no different than they are. We're no better off. We're no less a sinner. So we come humbly and we come hopefully and point them to Jesus. Family, the dinner table, the meals are powerful. Our potlucks are powerful. God's calling us to invest them. And our prayer is that we would do that as a family and that we would love radically people like Levi and others and say, Jesus, use me to bring them to yourself so that one day we can continue that feast in glory. Imagine that hope. Imagine that. Sharing a meal with somebody in this life and then sharing it again with them in the next. Man, praise God, that'd be awesome. Let's pray, family. God, we thank you, Lord, again for the Bible and how clearly you speak to us through it, God. Lord, we, uh, we're no different than Levi. We know that. And I suppose, God, if some of us don't know that, help us see it. God, we, we can't earn your love by anything we do. And so we want to live, God, truly surrendered to you, embracing your forgiveness through the cross of Jesus and walking in that power day to day, Lord. And Father, I know, God, I know as every week, there are some among us here today who remain separated from you. And they have not uh, trusted in Jesus for their forgiveness of their sins. They uh, are holding on to their own lives. They're, they're not following you. They're walking with their eyes closed and hanging on to their own agenda. And God, I pray that you strip that from them and you're, according to your mercy and your love. And Father, for all of us, God, just give us that passion, Lord, to see people the same eyes that you see them, with compassion and love. So, Father, I pray this, and we pray this together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's all rise to our feet here, and I want to invite our prayer leaders to come up and come to the back of our, of our worship gathering here. And um, we want to take this time to pray for each other as we sing. And so there's a burden on your heart to be prayed for. Please come on forward or go to the back. We want to pray with you. Maybe there's someone in your life that you need to have over for dinner. Let, let someone come up to them and say, hey, can you pray for me? There's this coworker of mine. 
I need to extend that invitation this week. I mean, it's that family member of mine who lives right down the block. Would you pray for them? Pray with me. And so let's, let's take advantage of our prayer leaders who are here. Let's cry out to our God for strength, for help, to know how to engage his mission and reach out to people who are far from him. So let's lift our voices and sing together as well.
through Jesus. And so God, we have gathered this morning to meet with you, to, to be spurred on. Some are here searching for answers. And God, as we leave today, I, I pray that we would all see that our hope is found in you and that we would all see, God, the kind of life you want us to live in following after you. So may we be courageous, may we be confident, and may we be wise, oh God. We entrust ourselves to you this week, oh Lord. I pray you would be glorified and exalted in our lives and in our homes and in our meals. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we dismiss, before we dismiss you guys, I want to remind you guys that we have our luncheon. We'll start in about uh, 25, 30 minutes. So you can go downstairs, grab some coffee, and hang out, and then we'll start the luncheon promptly at 12.45. It'll be about an hour or so. And again, if you're new in the last six months to our church family here, uh, we'd love, love, love to, to get to know you and uh, show you and talk to you about what it means to be part of the Brook family. I want to leave you with this blessing which says, Lord, your God is with you, and he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. You are dismissed, Brooke family. We'll see you guys downstairs for refreshments.